Right. We continue on in a series called God in the Workplace, and we have been doing this, I think this is our third week, and this is a series that is a little bit of a cumulative series, meaning that what we do today and focus on uh, builds somewhat on last week, which builds on uh, the week before, and so I want to invite you just to go back and listen to the previous sermons if you would like to do so to get caught up if you missed the last week or two, if you need a refresher. Uh, and you can find the information on the inside of your bulletin down at the bottom left. Uh, there is our website, fumc.com slash contemporary sermons. And we also have ways for you to get that on your phone on podcast. So uh, you can go back and check that out if uh, you feel like you need to uh, get caught up or hear something again. We encourage you to do that. So the focus of this series is on where our faith and our work Overlap And our work could entail uh, lots of different areas of our life. It's basically wherever we are uh, exerting our energy to do something in the world, uh, whether you're a student or whether you have this thing called a J-O-B uh, or uh, whether you're a parent, whatever that looks like. We're looking at how does our faith and our work overlap? How do we bring our faith into our work? And on the other hand, how do we make sense of our work in light of our faith. Where is God in our places of work? As a part of that, we're holding up some examples among different people at different places and times and uh, among contemporary worship and how they see God at work in their workplace. And so I want to invite you to check out this week's video. I'm Cassidy Johnston. I'm married to Blake Johnston. We have three children. McLean, she is six and a half. Mayor Michaels, four and a half. And we have Sam, who's 11 months. I tell Blake all the time, I'm very grateful that he has provided me with the opportunity to stay home and to raise our children, um, to be a part of their little and big moments of every single day. A lot of times the work that I do is challenging just because I don't get days off or time off. Um, it's a sun up to sundown job and I, I hate saying it's a job, but that's what it is. And, oh wow, um, and so, perfect example there's just never any downtime or time to yourself really because there's always somebody needing something from you I do feel like I am doing exactly what God has called me to do in fact I was reading earlier in a scripture that really spoke to me from first Peter talking about just shepherding your flock and what that looks like and I really do feel like that this is the flock that God has entrusted Blake and I with and that it's our job to um, not be their compass but lead them to who their compass is and to um, love them and um, grow them in their faith and, and in the church and I really do feel like that is what God has created me to do at, especially at this time in my life. It's only fitting that we highlight the work of a mother on Mother's Day. And uh, you can kind of just feel the work in front of you, right? Like, like uh, we have four children, and, and we're kind of moving out of that crazy phase of life into other crazy phases of life. But it uh, uh, brings back memories, doesn't it, honey? Yes. Um, 
We have looked at and how, at how several different things, and we've been hanging out in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for these first uh, three weeks or so because we really want to establish and remember some things that are very important. And one of the things that we want to establish is that work is good. Okay, so we're going to say that together just to remind ourselves. We're going to say work is good on three. Say it with me. One, two, three. Work is good. Okay? Work is good. And the second thing we're going to say and remember is that we were made to work. God created us in his image, which means he created us to work. So I am made to work. Are you ready? One, two, three. I am made to work. Work is good. We were made for this thing called work. Last week, we looked at how this beautiful design for work and our being created to be about work, it got messed up. And it gets messed up in Genesis chapter 3, where the first co-workers, Adam and Eve, fall out of good compliance and relationship with the first boss with a capital B, that being God. And in that, work got messed up. There was a separation of relationships between Adam and Eve and God. They hid from the boss, and they also covered themselves when they sinned and they fell into disobedience. They realized they were naked, and they sinned, and uh, by covering themselves, they were trying to cover something up. They were trying to hide from each other, covering their shame. And so sin led to separation, but God began to overcome that separation, even in the garden. And we see this play out in the cross of Jesus, that in Christ, he took on the shame of sin on himself by hanging on a cross naked. So Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed. Jesus was naked and took on the shame of the world on a cross. And so God is doing something to overcome this separation that happens as a consequence of sin in the world. Now, today we're going to continue on in that because there's really kind of two categories of things that happen in Genesis chapter 3. The first one we just talked about is the natural consequences of sin that separates people from other people and separates us from God. But there's more going on than just that. In addition to the, consequence, the natural consequences of sin, God has his own response the, the separation all happened before God even came back in the garden. But God comes into the garden and he realizes that Adam and Eve sins. And so God adds his own sanctions, if you will, to the economic situation of the garden, to the first workplace in the world. Adam and Eve are hiding from God. God comes into the garden and says, where are you? Adam says, well, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. And God said, Who, why are you hiding? How do you even know to, to hide from me? Have you eaten from the tree that you were not meant to eat from? And Adam says, well, the woman actually gave it to me. And, and God goes to the woman. He says, well, what's the deal here? Did you eat from the tree? And the woman says, well, the serpent is the one who told me it was good and that I should do it. And so God goes to the serpent. So God starts at Adam, then goes to Eve, then goes to the serpent, and then God starts working his way back, and he says to the serpent, cursed are you, serpent, because you brought this deception into this workplace. Cursed are you, you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then he goes to Eve, and he says, because of what you have done, you, I will increase your labor in childbirth. 
I don't know if that's worth an amen or a groan. I don't know, moms, what that means. I will increase your labor in childbirth. And then God says, there will be enmity between your offspring and the serpents. So there's this battle going on between the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And then he finally gets to the man. He says, because of you and you listen to the voice of your wife and the voice of the serpent and not the voice of God, cursed is the ground because of you. The ground will bring thistles and thorns. And it's not just going to be a little nice garden anymore where you just get to go kind of trim the trees and pull the fruit off. You're going to be out in the field now and you're going to have to work the ground. And there's going to be this thing called toil that is involved with work. Work was good. Work was pure. But now God is kind of changing it. He's putting some kind of limits on it. And so the scripture we read, God drives the man and the woman out of the garden and he places a winged creature with flaming swords to guard the way to the tree of life. So being removed from the garden means they're removed from this tree of life and they can't get back in. They've been evicted, if you will, and there's no going back into this garden. This is a story that helps us to understand the problem we have in our relationship with work. Because ever since that day in Genesis chapter 3, we've been stuck out here in the field ever since. Dealing with the thorns and with the thistles. What this means is that our relationship with work is not just the good natured energy you exert with work, but all the toil, all the burden, all the frustration, all the things that could go wrong in the work world, individually as well as we could get into it, but we're not going to today, all the the ways that work is problematic in the world as a whole. And so because we are out here in the field with these thistles and thorns, we have two default responses that humans tend to err on one side or the other. The first response that we err is that we have a tendency, some of us or most of us, you fill in the blank if you're in this category, we have this tendency to overwork. A tendency to work too much, doing too many things uh, in, in, in in the direction of work. We see this in the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, not too far down the road. They say, hey, come, let's get together. Let's make a name for ourselves. And so the people get together and they begin this work. And in this work, they're building this tower, trying to reach up to heaven to be like God. We have that temptation ever since to build these towers for ourselves in order that we in some way could be like God. One of the ways we can understand this is this is an identity that is based upon what we do. I am what I do. I am nothing more than the product of my work. And so we see people enslaving themselves to this kind of work their whole life. Or maybe the reason that you overwork is because uh, you have a financial padding. You you just don't really trust that God's going to provide for all your needs. And so you're just going to keep padding that financial pad more and more and more. I don't know where the lines are in that. That's something that we all have to wrestle with. How much is too much? How much, when can I just trust that God's going to provide for me? And when do I just need to keep on working? The other way, maybe you overwork in other, for other reasons. Maybe, maybe work gets you to a place where you can afford a status, 
where by the very nature of what you do, you're a respected member of the community. Or maybe work gets you the kind of money that can get you the status. It can get you the kinds of things where you can kind of hold your head high and look around and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got it going on. Or maybe work is simply a way for you to say, I'm going to build it up all now so I can just relax and do nothing uh, someday. You know, maybe when I retire, my goal is going to be a bump on a log. And it's, it's, it's really just a way of saying, I just want to someday do nothing. I, and, and that's a, almost the same, way as, same thing as saying, I just want to give up on whatever God wants for me in my life. Now, that doesn't mean you can't retire. That doesn't mean you, you're, you, God doesn't want you to, to slow things down. But if you ever get to the point in your life where you say, there's nothing for me to do in the world, then you're probably missing out on what God's will is for you in your life at that time. All of these are ways that we try to overcome the curse of the ground, the curse of the thistles and the thorns. The problem is that the ground always wins. Sooner or later, the ground will have its way. Maybe the ground will win when your work leads you to neglect your health and you suffer from the consequences of that. Maybe the ground wins when you neglect key relationships in your life because you're focused on work so much you neglected your spouse or your kids. Or maybe you neglected your neighbors. Maybe work has been so much of a focus that has kept you from tending to your relationship with God. How easy is it just to keep on working? This has been a problem all the way from the beginning. Uh, when God commanded the children of Israel to have a Sabbath day, and He says, I'm going to provide you a double portion on the sixth day. Don't even go out on the seventh day because it's not going to be there. And what happens? Some people go out. They're wanting to work on that seventh day. We've had this problem with work for a long time. And it's still inside of us. It's how we deal with the weeds, the thistles, and the thorns. And so that's kind of the one temptation is just to keep working and working and working. And we kind of become the source or we think we're the source of all that is good in our life. The other temptation is that we disengage from work. We, we see, yeah, I don't want to mess with those thistles. So instead of just trying to overcome it, I, I'm just going to do the bare minimum. I'm, if I'm a student, it's just, you know, as long as I pass and, and mom and dad and professor aren't mad at me, that's fine. Or I'm just going to show up. I'm not going to do everything to the glory of God. I'm just going to make sure that I don't get written up. I'm not going to do the work that well as long as I'm just above the line. We see this in our unwillingness to even grow up in the world. You know, we have this new, this new term called adulting, right? That word didn't exist like three years ago. And, and I think that word kind of gets at the heart of our resistance. We don't want to grow up. We don't want to work. We don't, we don't want to do what it takes to mature and get to that place. There is that tendency just to, to say, yeah, that's not really what I'm meant to do. That's just adulting. That's just... You know, we, we can say that in a lot of different areas in life. Just another way that we're dealing with the curse of the ground. And so today I want to invite us to consider, maybe God is calling us to reframe our relationship with work. And it's not just one or the other. 
How do we understand work? Maybe there's a better way to understand the field and the weeds. So today I want to turn us to Romans chapter 8. Romans is probably the greatest book uh, or letter that Paul wrote. And Romans chapter 8 is probably the, the greatest chapter in the greatest letter that he wrote. And so some may find it ironic that it's in the heart of Romans 8 we would find this. But here we go. Romans 8 uh, verses 18 through 21. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation, whole creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's pretty dense material in there. So we're going to try to unpack just a little bit of it. God has subjected all of creation. Paul is referring back to Genesis chapter 3 where God is subjecting creation. He's putting limits and sanctions on what we can do in creation. Why is he doing that? Is it because he's mean or is there a deeper reason and purpose? One of the reasons that God is subjecting creation is that by living in a world where there are thorns and thistles, we have a humble reminder of our own brokenness and therefore our need for a Savior. Next time you bump your head in the workplace or you bump your head at home or you find yourself frustrated and things aren't going your way, consider it a grateful opportunity to grow in your humility. Amen? Maybe? When life is hard, it is an opportunity. Hardship in life allows us to see our own brokenness and it puts us in the potential position to humble ourselves and to cry out to God for help. That we would trust Him in the midst of the burdens and the toils of life. In fact, we need hardship. We need challenge. If we don't have hardship in our lives, then we become something other than human beings. You take any person and, and they've never had anything difficult happen to them in their life, they're not that strong of a person. Consider the trials in your life to be a means through which God is using you to shape you into something greater than those trials. Namely, your character. The very person that you were made to be and become. God is using the weeds and the thorns and the thistles to shape you if you comply with his grace to become who he wants you to be. The problem is this requires a lot of humility. It requires that we bow down to him. It requires that we worship him. It requires that, that it might even drive us to our knees in humility. That we get to this place where, you know, in the garden, they're kind of up in the, up in the air, cutting the trees and pruning them. But down, down here on the field, we got to get our hands in the dirt, don't we? We're in the ground, the place of, of humility. This is what the 
thorns and thistles are meant to do. To drive us to this place where we realize our brokenness and our need for a Savior. If hardship hasn't driven you to this posture lately, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to say, God, I'm, I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I'm tired of thinking and, and living in this illusion that I've got this thing figured out. My life is more than what I can bear. It's more than what I can do. And so I get down on my knees and I just say, God, I'm a broken person and I need your grace. This is a very good place to be, brothers and sisters. Right here. And this is what the the thorns and the thistles are meant to do. They're meant to bring us to that place. That place of great humility. That's reason number one that God has subjected creation. Reason number one that God has driven Adam and Eve out of that garden and into the field. But there's another reason. And Paul says it when he says the two words, in hope. God subjected creation in hope of something else. In hope of some kind of freedom. How does that work? Well, we were made for the garden. God took man and he formed him out and he placed him right in the garden. That's exactly what we're made for. We're made to tend to this work in the garden. But God removes man and woman from the garden. And now we got that problem of being in the field. But God has created us for the garden. He's created us for the tree. Remember a couple weeks ago I said that there are two places in the entire Bible where everything is pure and good and right. The first one is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. All is well in Genesis 1 and 2. The other one is Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. Everything else is a really big mess. It's all tangled. But we can look to the beginning to see God's design of things, and we can look at the very end to see the pure design of things. And so we go there today, Revelation 22, 1 through 3. Here's the vision that God showed to John. It says, Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the what? The tree of life. With its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing what? Accursed. Remember the ground was cursed, but nothing is accursed in this place. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. The tree of life. In Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, God says, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Why would that be a bad thing? Well, the reason that would be a bad thing is that once Adam and Eve have entered into this corrupted state, to take from the tree of life means that they would have eternal corruption, eternal sin. And that's not God's design for them. And so God protected them from the tree of life because they were no longer able to hold it. And to have it. And to touch it. Because sin has to play its course out now. Sin leads to death. Because God says, in the day you eat it, you will die. 
Well, they ate it and the journey of death begins. And so death has to play itself out. And death plays itself out into the world again and again and again and again. But God came into the same world, not as a corrupted person, but as a pure person. And in Jesus Christ, God himself took death upon himself. He entered into death and took upon the consequences of sin upon himself. And then proved that he overcome the powers of death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the new creation. It's Genesis 1 and 2 all over again. God is starting something new. And he began it in Christ. Out of, the, out of the ground, God formed Adam, or man, in Genesis 1. And out of the tomb, God brings a new creation in Christ. And that's the same Jesus that's in the garden that we are called to worship. It means that when we place our faith and our trust in Him, even though the work of our hands and everything that we do today is going to lead to our own death, our own corruption, our own expiration. The promise of God is resurrection. The promise of God is new life. And the vision for that is a new work ahead of us. That in that vision of final glory, that we're not just going to be sitting around doing nothing, but we're going to have work. And somehow, the work that we do now is connected to that future hope. I'm going to leave it up to you and the Holy Spirit to figure that one out. But what that means is that God is dealing with this problem of the thorns and the thistles. And that He has entered into our world and He gives us a hope that we will be able to work that tree again. Until then, we're going to have the thistles and the thorns. We're not going to escape it. It's going to be a part of our life. We're going to engage it. And we're going to give everything we got as God so leads us and gives us strength to do so. So today I invite you to consider the work of your life that is before you now or the work that God might be calling you to begin to engage in. Where is God wanting to bring you to a place of humility? To bring you to your knees to cry out to Him for help? And then where is God showing signs of hope in the work that you're in? Hope that will last for eternity. Let us pray.